for coaches, by coaches, this is Soccer Chat with Nick Rizzo and Sean Sauterly. Brought to you by social media for high school athletes. Well, we hope that you all had a very Merry Christmas. I hope that you all were good and Santa Claus got you all exactly what you wanted. Welcome to Soccer Chat, the year in review. As you know, this is the weekly soccer coaching journey podcast brought to you for free every single week by the good folks at social media for the high school athletes. Check them out online at socialstudentathletes.com and all over social media at HS social media. You know, Nick is uh, currently on an island right now. Uh, My name is Sean. We are the co-host of this show, and we really want to kind of take this time to reflect on the year that was and just kind of give you some of the moments that we enjoyed. Uh, And there are so many, we couldn't get them all on here, but we just picked a few uh, of, of some of the episodes that we thought we'd like to bring back when we talked about the year in review. And one of the first episodes that we did in January of this year was with the Good Brother, who you will be able to see live at the convention on Podcast Row with the United Soccer Coaches, where we will be there. His show will be on Thursday at 4 p.m. That's Randy Waldrum, head coach of the University of Pittsburgh women's team, former Houston Dash coach, former University of Notre Dame coach, but also the former coach of Trinidad and Tobago. And he's got quite the story about his time with that team. We wanted to go back and check out that story again. One thing I also want to bring up in, in our time together too is, you know, in your time with Houston, um, I think it's very well documented about your time with Trinidad and Tobago and just yeah. some of the things that you guys went through as, as, a, as a federation and, and, and as a national team that were just, I can remember, um, I, I believe you guys were playing, I want to say it was you guys playing, did you play U.S. in Houston? Or we played them in Kansas Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I can remember uh, watching that game with my wife and, and the announcers talking about the things that you guys were going through and the, and the money situation from the Federation, all those things And my wife just being like, Oh my God, like what, what type of person would sit there and, and go through this? Yeah. Uh, and, and I had to bring up to her, like, you know, like, unfortunately you don't really have that op- option. Like it's, you know, you're, you're into it, you're committed to it. And I think one things was in, in the interviews that they had, they had done with you, uh, about that going into the game was, I mean, there was just a, what you just talked about, like a genuine care for people and, and trying to help out. I, I now I can connect what you said in the interviews about that. So in your time with, with TNT, I mean, just what was that experience like, um, you know, going from Notre Dame and Houston where you've kind of got all these uh, amenities given to you uh, and now you're with TNT and it's kind of, come up with Harry King. Cause I know that there was a big support of, I know people had donated uh, boots for, for a game or something. You guys had, had yeah. lost some, some clothing items, but just kind of what was that experience like? Well, it was, it was probably in some regards, the best experience of my life. And so oh, I guarantee it, the, the, the worst experience of my life in some regards, but the one thing that's a constant are those players there. Uh, I stay in touch with almost all of them today, just like they're my own kids, you know, because um, the country just doesn't have much in, in terms of women's football and they're not committed and they're so passionate about the game and they just want somebody to believe in them and give them a chance. And, and uh, they, they fought all of these battles for years and years with their, their own federation trying to get what they need. But, you know, I, I really, I could write a book about it and, and I could spend the whole hour just talking about the experiences, but I'll share a couple of quick things with you is, um, 
Sheldon Phillips was the general secretary at uh, Trinidad and Tobago, and he's the one that brought me on board. And my connection to Sheldon is his father is the legend uh, Lincoln Phillips that coached Howard to a couple of national championships way back in the day on the men's side. And, and um, Lincoln was a, a, a star goalkeeper in Trinidad and Tobago. He's still kind of a national hero there. So I've known Lincoln for years through U.S. soccer and some things that we've kind of gone through the, the wars together. So when his son became general secretary, you know, I was the first call he made to say, hey, come help us get through this qualifying. And so I have to start by saying he did a lot for us um, that wouldn't have gotten done had it been anybody else. But, you know, I can remember the first time I brought them in, uh, they came into uh, I had them come into Houston to do uh, a couple of weeks training before we had the Caribbean qual. We had to qualify through the Caribbean qualifications first before we made it to CONCACAF. And um, when they got to Houston, there was only about 12 players that showed up. I can remember there was a plastic hefty bag that all the equipment was in. I mean, it was a bunch of old ragged balls. They didn't, they had a medical kit, didn't have anything in it. I don't know why they brought it. It didn't have tape. It didn't have pre-wrap. It didn't have anything in it. Um, and they didn't have money really to, to eat. We had to go shopping and just buy a bunch of beans and rice and stuff like that to get them fed. And, and, uh, it was really the first experience that I had with them to know how it was going to be. And, um, so after we trained here for a couple of weeks, I went back to Trinidad and worked with them through the month of September. The difficulty is was that's the rainy season over there and the facilities were either underwater or flooded or we couldn't get on to the top field or there was always some kind of an issue. Plus the kids weren't getting paid or any kind of per diem or stipend or anything from the Federation. So a lot of them couldn't even make it to training uh, to work. And then on top of that, probably our six best players were in the U S playing for various colleges. So we never really had the team together. So I finally went to Sheldon and said, I've got to get these guys down in, in, into the States at least 10 days prior to opening up against the U S my gosh, we're getting ready to play the, the best in the world. And we're not, we haven't even trained with our entire team one time. And, um, so we kept trying to get over to the States, didn't have any funding to get here. So finally, about a week before, my son works for FC Dallas uh, in, in the club side. So he was able to set up all the facilities for us there. And um, so I left Trinidad a couple of days early to come over and make sure everything was organized and set up. And then um, the team was to arrive and we were going to, the, the plan was to train there seven days and then head to Kansas City for the opener in CONCACAF and um, I can remember it was a Tuesday night and getting a phone call from one of our players about midnight and she said coach uh, they, they call me coach man you know coach man we're here I said well, okay we'll get on the get on the shuttle bus you know to the hotel and I'll see you for breakfast in the morning and she said coach uh, we don't know anything about a bus there's no bus here and I said well let me talk to the, the manager and she said they didn't send a manager and I said well who did they send <clears throat> And she said, nobody, just, there was just 12 players. And she said, and coach, they didn't send us with any money. And uh, she said, one of the parents had given their daughter $500, but they'd spent 300 in Miami feeding the team because nobody had money to eat. Yeah. And then they flew on to Dallas. So they only had a couple hundred dollars left. And I said, well, listen, I have a little convertible. I can't come get you one at a time at midnight. And, and, <laughs> and you know, it's an hour away. So I told her to try to talk to the taxi drivers and see if they would take them all over there for a couple hundred dollars, which they did. 
So the whole night I couldn't sleep because I'm thinking they sent these kids here. There's no money. There's no administrator. I should be worrying about their practice during the week to prepare for the U S but instead I'm worrying about how am I going to feed these kids? You know, first and foremost, how am I going to feed these kids? And I knew we had breakfast at the hotel, but other than that, I'm, I'm panicked. So I got up first thing in the morning and I sent this tweet out. Little did I know it was going to go viral like it did, but it hit all over the country. And it was basically saying, you know, they expect us to qualify for a world cup, but they sent the team here with no money. If you can help, you know, with, with anything, um, you know, please let me know type thing. And of course it really upset the Federation at Trinidad and Tobago. And they kept trying to get me to take the tweet down, but I was so angry at that time. I said, listen, you're the ones that sent them here this way. I'm Mm -hmm. the one stuck taking care of them. And we had people out of the woodwork, you know, donating food and supplies and, you know, equipment. And it was, it was amazing to see the soccer community come together and, and they even put together a GoFundMe account. I think it generated in a couple of days, seventeen or $18,000. So we were at least able to pay our bill at uh, the hotel in Dallas and, uh, and get some training in during the week. But we really only got the college kids in there a couple of days before we played the U.S. So it's probably one of my biggest um, accomplishments. I think we played the U.S. and we actually only lost 1-0. Uh, on a late goal from Abby and I think around the 70th minute. And we actually had a couple of decent chances, you know, to now we just defended for 90 minutes, but we had a couple of chances off the counters to, um, uh, to really, you know, make it difficult for the U S but those kids went through um, uh, the, the Caribbean qualifying. And, and I think we played in front of about 3000 people to win the championship against Jamaica in the Caribbean qualifiers. And then by the time we went through CONCACAF, you know, we had to, go through the U S Haiti and, and Guatemala and, and qualified out of our group. Then we, all we had to do to qualify was beat uh, Costa Rica or Mexico. And we lost to Costa Rica and penalty kicks. And then we were winning with 12 minutes left against Mexico. And then we ended up losing in overtime to Mexico. So our last opportunity was to play a home and away against Ecuador up in Quito, which is about nine or 10,000 feet above sea level. And the altitude was unbelievable. But we went up there and got a 0-0 result on the road and came home and ended up losing uh, on a free kick in about the 93rd minute. But we were playing in front of 20,000 people. I mean, the country just really embraced us and all of that. But I could tell you so many stories about the funding and situations that we went through because we didn't have it. Um, but at the end of the day, I did it because of those girls. You know, they deserved it and, and a great, great group of players. And uh, they deserve a lot more than they were given. But they're they're all kind of national heroes back home now. So a lot of them are doing their own camps and clinics and clubs and everything else. So I think it was a big, um, a big benefit for their, their the rest of their lives. That's so awesome. Like, it's funny because, like, when we're watching those games, like me and Sean as a – third party like we're probably rooting so hard for abby to get that last one in you guys and it's funny because you never get to hear those stories you never get to hear the other side of all like that those girls had those women had to go through to just get to the field and like that's nuts like it's it's one of those things like if you know those story beforehand it's probably one of those situations where like you're like rooting for us but you're like kind of apprehensively rooting for the u.s because you you want to hear those people and like do well because of all the stuff they have to go through yeah yeah. i'm not gonna lie i was rooting for tnt that game (laughs) i'm u.s fan through and through that game i was like what because i'm thinking because again i'm like long-term thinker i'm thinking if they win just this game alone is a movie a book yeah. like 
Disney would make so much money off of this. Yeah. Like yeah. what a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Good group of good group of kids. They went through a lot. You know, one of the girls along the way, her brother was, we were in camp in Trinidad and her brother was shot and killed in a, a, a place called Laventel, which is a really bad part of Trinidad and Tobago, a lot of crime. And, and he, he, he was shot and killed during the, the week, you know, before we came to, to the States and, you know, just stories of girls that, couldn't train because they don't even have hygiene equipment to take care of being on the period or whatever else. I mean, it's just things that our kids take for granted and some of the fields and some of the equipment that they use, our youth teams wouldn't even step on a field and practice on a field like we, we, we trained on. So a lot of, a lot of stories, but a lot of credit to those young ladies and really some, some talent down there too. If they'd ever get their act together, they could be, um, they could, they could become a, a handful for, for CONCACAF. You can go back and check that one out in the archives, which is brought to you for free every single week. And you go back to see all the archives, listen to them all. Thanks to the good folks at social media for high school athletes. That was episode number 30 that we released on January 10th of 2018 with Randy Waldrum. That was just a few weeks or so after he was named the head coach of the university of Pittsburgh. And while we have him in Chicago at the live show on Thursday, at 4 p.m. at Podcast Row at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Chicago. We're going to talk to him a little bit more about what uh, this year was like because uh, he had just started the season after we'd had our conversation, and we can see what uh, this first season with the University of Pittsburgh was like for the good brother as he returns back to Soccer Chat Live, taking your guys' questions as well live from Podcast Row. The next, actually, the next week, uh, we had a really awesome conversation with someone who Nick had known and I hadn't met before, but he's just got a really cool story. Uh, Sean Danhauser, who is the director of Illinois Top Soccer, and I would dare say he's the director of Top Soccer all over the country. Uh, I know that he does a lot of work with the regional staff as well when it comes to that. Uh, just a cool story and a cool guy who just from this episode, talking to him online, recording an hour conversation with him, um, I just know that man, he, he's such a good dude. Uh, I was in Chicago working a camp and he saw that I was in Chicago, said he wasn't literally lived around the corner from where I was staying, uh, took me out to dinner and just such a cool guy uh, that man, like I want to talk to him more. And I know that we're going to see him at convention in Chicago as well. So let's get into a little bit more with Sean about how he got into such a special and amazing program. The stuff that you do is just so cool. And we're going to get into that a lot later, but one of the things that we always start with initially is give us a little bit of a background that how Sean got to 2017 doing what you're doing right now. Like start from the beginning. Okay. Um, so uh, always play the game. Love the game. Um, the highest level I, I played was um, college D3. I went to Lake Forest College back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then I kind of, uh, I wasn't originally from Chicago area, so I didn't know the club scene in Chicago. So I kind of got away from that. I played some Australian rules football for a while, which is pretty cool. And if you haven't seen that, you should check Australian rules football is super dope. Yeah. So I, um, so I played for the local team here, Chicago Swans. Uh, I was lucky enough to to play, uh, you know, uh, I got an international cap with them once uh, when, right when I turned 30 and, and, and promptly blew my knee out right afterwards. Um, so then I, I, I stopped playing uh, and had kids, as you might imagine. Um, but as soon as my daughter was five, uh, I got involved with the coaching, which, you know, I got the coaching bug early, loved it. 
I uh, did recreational soccer for a number of years. Um, and then, you know, I quickly saw that uh, there was a real need in my, my local town of Addison, Illinois, uh, for a travel club for our local kids. We have a lot of great, talented kids, hardworking kids, um, but we are kind of a blue collar neighborhood. So they couldn't afford uh, a traditional travel club in, 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 the, in the Northwest Western suburbs. So me and a couple of buddies got together and we, we put one together. Um, did that for about five years. And then I, I, have, two, I have two other children. I have a, a, a son named Braden who never got the soccer bug at all. And then my youngest son, Jake, um, he was diagnosed at about two and a half as having autism. Um, so I knew that I'd, I'd want to find a, a, an outlet for him sports-wise. And I wanted to share my passion of soccer with him as well. And um, so when he was about uh, maybe, let's see, seven or eight, I started looking around for some type of program that I could put him in. And um, that's where I kind of ran up against a brick wall, guys. Um, we did have a local Special Olympics program in my town. And um, they basically told me that there's no room in their program for my son. And I was just flabbergasted by that. So um, I went and watched their team play. And it was all 25, 30-year-old adults. There was no kids. Um, so they told me, we play for gold medals at the state games. Um, that's what we're focused on. And uh, they said, but we like you. Would you like to help us coach? And I said, well, we're kind of a package deal. So no thanks. Um, and I, I had heard about top soccer through USU Soccer. And I knew that it uh, was an, kind of an inclusive uh, community-based program that, um, you know, would help kids of all disabilities. So I was also um, a little more narrower than you might imagine. It really only focused on um, kids with Down syndrome and high-functioning autism. So if you have a physical impairment of any kind, you, you know what? You're not playing for them. Um, and it's really has it too. So depending on the community, um, they may have soccer, but they may not have it for kids. They may, it may start at 13 or up. They may not have soccer at all. So, uh, I reached out to, uh, Illinois youth soccer and said, um, Hey, I'm looking for a top soccer program. Can't find one. Um, any suggestions? And they said, well, you know, maybe you could start one. And I said, you know what? I absolutely will. So, um, in the summer of 2011, um, I grabbed a couple parents that I knew from some other programs that we were involved in. I'd say, hey, listen, um, I'm a soccer coach. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to do some fun stuff. You know, come on board with me. Um, so I got about 10 kids. Um, those 10 kids told 10 more families, and they told more families, and they more, told more families. So um, it was pretty exciting because we were about six years in to – uh, of the top soccer program that I started, uh, we just served our 100th kid. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that we did that. Um, we typically have about 50 kids on the roster each, each, each year, uh, about 25, 30 will show up each week. So, uh, you know, we get some, some in and outs now and then, but we're always adding maybe five new players every season, which, which is great. So we've had some kids that have been there since day one. And, uh, you know, continue to love the game. 
And uh, as I've been involved with my program, uh, Illinois Youth said, hey, you did a great job. Would you help us, you know, spreading the word, creating the, uh, you know, awareness of this? Um, so I kind of came on board with, with them to help them grow programs in Illinois. So um, we've done a good job. So we're, I think we're up, you know, in, in the four or five years that I've kind of been in that role. We got about 13 programs in Illinois when we started off with none. Um, I'm personally won't be satisfied until we're way over 20. Um, that's kind of a personal goal that I set for myself that I won't, I won't stop pushing until I hit that number. Um, and then last year, um, I guess that was noticed by some of my regional peers and they asked me to, uh, step in for, um, in a regional role, doing the exact same thing, creating outreach, um, connecting the other programs because some of our programs are pretty distant from each other. So they kind of just are on an island of, of their own. Um, so I've spent a lot of time just contacting everybody, letting them know that, hey, they're not alone. And we've got, you know, you've got a whole family of, of top soccer programs out there and let's get connected. So that's what I've been spending most of last year doing. Um, but come, come spring and fall, I kind of focused just on my, my local program. And I got to tell you, Nick, you've been out to help when you were with Aurora and it's amazing. It's so much fun. And what's lost in the shuffle is not only are we giving our players, you know, what, what they desire, which is social contact, um, physical activity, just, uh, being part of a team, um, we're also doing quite a bit for the volunteers and more than a few come up to me and tell me that they actually think they get more out of the program than the players do. Um, and now I see I, and hear stories where maybe a, you know, a volunteer will see another kid at the grocery store and then they, they make, they high five, they come over and they talk and that would have never happened before. So um, it's got so so much going for it, the program, um, that, I mean, I could talk all day about this guy. So that's no, kind of I where, how, that's the thing. I want to talk about this all day. <laughs> awesome. You know, cause, cause usually I'm, I, I apologize up front. I'm like, listen, I'm going to bore you to tears because I, I couldn't be more passionate about, uh, this program. Um, it's amazing. Um, as a competitive coach, even if I had a good day, I was getting screamed at by my parents for, playing kids out of position, not enough playing time, you know, just whatever, um, you know, you'd walk. And that was when we won the game. Um, but when with top star, I come out of there, I feel 10 feet tall. My emotional gas tank is completely filled. Never had a parent ever say anything, but thank you. And that's what I really want to convey to my, my coaching peers is you should get involved just for the, that aspect of it, just to keep, you know, your, your fire and your excitement and your love for the game, because, um, the game can, can take it from you pretty quickly. Um, but if you can, you know, help out with, with top soccer, you're gonna, you're gonna last a lot longer and you're going to be a lot happier about the game. January was a really cool month for us. We started off talking to Jess Nash, then Randy Waldrum, Sean Danhauser, Manya Puppioni, Derek Willis, 
And then we got into February and we talked to Mike Melton, uh, who's an absolute blast. You need to go check out and listen to that one. We did a little special show about the U.S. election reaction uh, to the new uh, president, Carlos. Uh, and then we got into, on Valentine's Day, a really cool episode uh, with a former coach who uh, now has taken on a new role and really helps with leadership and developing those leaders within your team. We talked to Molly Grisham and it's an episode that I think a lot of us are going back and listening to over and over and over again. It's funny. Like when you, again, because I obviously saw you after a game and we were talking with Jen and everyone from Westminster. And I think you, you really do practice what you preach. You could tell that you were just, you were there to be a supporter and it was pretty cool. I actually talked to KJ before earlier today, today, um, asking her about you and stuff like that, just because I wanted to see what her story was with everything. And she has nothing but awesome things to say, say about you. Um, and she's one of my favorite girls in the entire world. But um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, because I don't think that people quite understand a person that's living your life as a public speaker, as a person that's doing all that. What's a week in your life look like? Mm, it it's it's every day is different. And it depends on kind of the season in the year. So the month of August, I will be booked every single day. Um, I will mostly be doing team building work with teams that are fall sports that are in preseason. So I'll show up and for some of the teams, they'll say, hey, our budget will allow you to do one session with us. I'll have other teams that say we fundraised and we can have you here for a couple of days. We can knock out a bunch of sessions. Um, but August will be, that's all I'll be doing. I'll just be working with team after team after team, helping them come together. Um, a lot of what I do in terms of team building is based in experiential learning. So I'll work with the coaches to find out what's a weakness or what's an issue or what's an area this team can be better. And a coach might say it's communication or it's problem solving or it's dealing with adversity. And then I'll design a series of activities that will really showcase those issues or bring them out. And so the, the student athletes will just think they're having fun. Like we're just playing this game and we're blindfolded and we got to build something or there's a puzzle. There's something that we have to solve. Um, but that will be essentially working on the issue that the coach has brought to mind. And then we will sit down in a circle and we will have a very intense debrief of what we just experienced. And so part of the reason that experiential learning works is we get the chance to debrief in real time. So if you think about communication on the field, you might play a game on Sunday. Maybe Monday is your off day. It's now Tuesday, and you're saying to your players, okay, do you guys remember in the 57th minute when we gave up that defensive corner kick and this happened? And you, they're all nodding at you, and you know they have no clue what you're talking about because that was two days ago. They don't remember that moment. But with experiential learning, it literally just happened, and we can debrief that in real time. A another th reason that that works is the roles are so reversed. So your star target forward, who everybody knows is the go-to player on the team, might not actually contribute very much to that activity, but your third string left back may have the answer to the puzzle that you are trying to solve. And so roles get switched and, and, and people get to play different roles on your team, how that value system is turned upside down. And it's done in a low-pressure environment. I, I can't pull someone's scholarship in that moment um, they're not going to lose their spot on the team, whether or not they succeeded or failed in this puzzle and activity. So that is a big part of what I do um, in preseason. 
Um, during the regular season, I will often go out and work with teams on experiential learning. A lot of teams will bring me in to do a conflict resolution session, which sounds absolutely horrible. Uh, but I think I've come up with a fun way to make that happen that includes some role play and understanding how different people process conflict and how teams handle that differently. And I found that to be really rewarding with teams as well. And then I, I do a lot of speaking on leadership, coming in and doing more of a workshop format with teams, helping them reframe leadership. So many student athletes think of leadership as hierarchy. They assume that seniors are leaders, that captains are leaders, that starters are leaders. My opinion is that leadership is all about influence. I think it's something we all have. It's how we choose to use it. I don't think that leadership is about positional power on a team. I think it's about relational influence. And so helping a team to turn that upside down and to see leadership in a different model and, and think differently about what leadership is going to look like on their teams. And then when I'm not with athletic teams, uh, I often do corporate work, some corporate team building. I do a lot of Myers-Briggs assessments, a little bit with teams, but a lot of corporate work there as well. And then certainly lead some retreats, uh, faculty staff type retreats, um, some athletic department retreats as well, where we can just get off campus and kind of clear our heads a little bit and, and focus a little bit on who you are and kind of the difference that you want to make in the world. So when I look at my calendar every week, there is something different. Um, it's never the same. Other than like all those days in August that I'm working with, with teams doing experiential learning, my days are different every single day. And, and that's one of the things that I enjoy about the work I'm doing. That's awesome. One of the things I want to ask that kind of sparked from what you were talking about there, it, I might have even gotten this from something you re uh, had written on your website. Um, it, but what is that website, by the way? So people are like, I'm not just talking to no one if people want to look it up while we're talking about this. Absolutely. My website is called apersonofinfluence.com. That comes from my definition of influence, which is a leader is a person of influence who uses their influence for good by empowering, inspiring, and serving others, and as someone who's always willing to grow. So apersonofinfluence.com. When one of the most common things I hear from a lot of coaches, and I probably said this myself, is I don't have leaders in this group. What What is your response to coaches that tend to have that type of response to a team that they're coaching? Yeah, one of the things that that I love to work with coaches and players on is the idea that leadership is a skill. And I think so many young people think leadership is a trait. Like I'm either born that way, I either have the leadership trait or I don't. And my belief is it's a skill. Well, if it's a skill, then it's something we can all get better at. It's something we can all develop. Now, some people have a head start on that in life. There's no question about it. If if you've been around other leaders, you're you're likely to become a better leader a little bit quicker. But I think if a coach says to me, I have no leaders, okay then we need to identify who has the potential, what skills do they need to develop, and how can we kind of map out a course of that. So I think leadership is a skill, but I also think that leadership is a choice. And I think that's one of the struggles that we have to deal with as coaches is that we will occasionally have a player who we think has great leadership potential. She's the player that everybody on the team looks to. And if you pull her aside and say, hey, you've got the leadership skills, she might still look at you and go, nope, I don't want to do that. I just want to go score goals, coach. That's all I want to do. I don't want to be a leader. And I think we have a responsibility as coaches to develop our, our players in terms of their leadership skills and to invite them into that space and allow them to make that choice. One of the things I talk a lot about with teams is the idea of empowerment. And I think 
that there are a lot of players who do not step up to lead because they don't know that they have permission to do so. And ultimately, that's what the captain's armband does. It gives someone permission to lead. It says, go for it. You you have our endorsement. Go be a leader. But leadership does not equal a captain's armband. In my opinion, you want leaders in every single class. And you want leaders on the bench as much as you want leaders on the field. Because if you're most college teams, you have more players on the bench than on the field. So if you don't have leaders dealing with that large volume of players on your bench, I think you have a problem on your hands. So one of the questions I often ask coaches when they say, well, I don't have any leaders is, have you told them it's okay for them to lead? Have you pulled a few of them aside and said, look, I have your back. You have the skills. um, You have my permission to be a leader on this team. And I will equip you with whatever you need to be successful. Um, I, I think that's a big piece that's missing in coaching is simply giving kids permission to lead. And, and I would say that from the youth level all the way through the college game, that so many kids are just waiting for someone to say, I see you, you, you can go for it, go be a leader on our team. They're waiting for an armband to give them permission versus a coach saying, you don't need an armband, go be a leader on our team, you have my support. Do you find that there most coaches do force that whole leadership role on on kids whose personality just doesn't match it yeah um I, I think that there's two things you have to think about when you are identifying your leaders and there's so many different models to leadership whether it's the the traditional captains whether it's a leadership council i, I have one team that i work with that has no captains they see them they see everyone as a leader and that's been really good for them but I think you have to ask yourself, what does your team need? And then what do you need as a coach? I think there has to be balance there. And so your team may need one thing. <laughs> you might say, I really want that player to be our leader. That's what's good for me as a coach because I have a good relationship with that player. But is that what's best for your team? If you've, if you've put a toxic, negative player who makes the wrong decisions off the, off the field in a position of leadership – just because you have a connection with that player, you're sabotaging your team. That's not what your team needs from you. And so I think it's important as coaches to ask yourself both of those questions. What does my team need in terms of leadership? Do we need to restructure our leadership? What's that model going to look like? Who do they trust as leaders? And then what do I need? I I can give you an example. I have a team that I work with that probably – if you'd asked the players, they would have said this year, we don't want captains. We're, we're all leaders. We've bought into this. We, we see our freshmen as leaders. We see our seniors, our starters, our reserve players. We all see ourselves as leaders. We're good to go. But this particular coach needed to know that she had someone who basically had her back. She needed to know that she had a player who would show up in her office if things were, were headed south, uh, a player that she could trust if things were going, if bad decisions were being made on a Friday night, that this player was going to step up. And so we, we kind of created a model that was useful for them where this player, one player particularly, um, had kind of an assigned role to connect with the coach and kind of be the bridge between the players and the coaches. So I, I think finding that balance uh, between what your, what your team needs and, and what you need is important. And then understanding that just because you want someone to be a leader on your team, it might not be the best fit for them and it might not be the best fit for the team either. What, have you been into a situation where, and I, I've had a couple of teams where, where it's been like this, where 
the the best the best leader on the team may not exactly be the best player that's going to be on the field yes a, a majority of the time how how do you know when you see that situation with other teams is how is the way that you go about that and, and helping the coach really work with that yeah I, I think in the perfect world you you always have someone on the field that's a leader for you but I think we have to help our teams understand that I don't think your best player has to be your leader in fact on the attacking side, I think it's really, really hard for a great goal scorer to be a leader. I think they have to have a little bit of an ego. They have to be a little selfish. And that can be tough to to flip that switch so many times in a game that, yes, I got to be really selfish right now and I got to go score a goal. Oh, wait, let me stop and take care of the team. I think that can be really, really tough to do. And so sometimes I think it's better to have a, a player that's more of a reserve role or, I mean, certainly goalkeepers and center backs and holding mids, I think, make great, great leaders on a team just because of the responsibilities in those positions. But I don't think it has to be your best player. Maybe the reason they're their best, they are the best player is that they can just go focus on playing soccer. And maybe that's what you need them to do. Um, I, I think when you have a player who's in more of a reserve role that it's that is a leader on your team, I think it's just being intentional about giving them space and allowing them to do their job and, and potentially do it from the bench. And you may have to rethink what does leadership look like from the bench? What does it look like in a reserve role on the field? But I absolutely think um, you do not have to have your best player serving as your leader on your team. I feel like I kind of like set the double standard by being the big goal scorer, but without the ego and still want to be the captain. <laughs> We continued on in February. We talked to Peter May, Matt Mott, Angela Kelly, Bruce Erickson, another best friends episode with Jamie Forbes and Katie Berkepeck, which I highly recommend as well. Such a hilarious and informational episode. Uh, the current most listened to show Stan Anderson from camp shutout episode 41. We talked to him in March. Uh, we got into Clifton Bush, Tom White, Tommy, 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 Cat uh, Nichols, as well as another Best Friends episode with uh, two who are going to be on Chicago's live show with us, Sarah Loudon and Sam Etherington. Must listen. Those two are hilarious. If you're going to be in Chicago, you have to come watch them. They're absolutely amazing. Uh, just hysterical couple of Newcastle girls who love soccer, love coaching, and are just legitimate good best friends uh, that have a really cool story. And we got into May where we had a really cool story and we had a good opportunity to talk to Nick's college coach where he had some very interesting things to say about what it was like coaching Nick and things that Nick never knew about his time. I had seen Nick play. I mean, we, we had emailed back and forth. I think there was email at the time. No, there was, um, but uh, we'd emailed back and forth. I remember seeing you play maybe Muscatine college showcase. You were the Chicago fire team was there. Um, you know, we'd saw you play and then, you know, through the course of the fall, been in touch, you know, but with your season and our season. Yeah. And then that story where you came and saw us play, but um, I wasn't even there. So the, the the funny story about that is Nick's parents came to the game. I did say hi to your parents at the game um, without Nick. And then the next day, Nick came to the game um, to watch us play and we won again. But I wasn't even there because I was with the women's team down the road at University of Chicago in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So that's, that leads to a funny, you know, I've had that problem where men and women's teams were in the institute, uh, you know, to make a decision of who you were coaching and, um, you know, 
what you were going to do on a particular day was, was a little bit more complicated. So. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I, I mean, I obviously know what Loris has been like since I've been there, but I really don't know a ton of what it was like to get like where you guys got to in terms of like when everything got to when it was in 2005, mm-hmm. the had some success early, the men, it took a little bit longer. What was the difference? Like what, why did one progress a little bit faster than the other to start? You know, the women had kind of a, had a good leadership group back early on. Um, it was probably a little bit easier to make a transition from going from player to coach with them because when I was a senior, it was the first year of the women's program. So I didn't really like hang out with any of the soccer girls or anything like that. That just didn't happen in my world. So, um, you know, I wasn't friends with them. So when they came in and the group that went to the, you know, made the first NCAA run in 2001, um, is you know, my third year coaching or whatever, it was, it was my team. And, and it was, a a group I didn't have, you know, they would listen and they understood that. And the senior leadership group that year was, was really good. Um, and, uh, you know, they wanted to win and they brought those girls along pretty fast and, and, uh, you know, so I think their culture evolved a little bit faster than, than the men. And, uh, on the men's side, um, you know, I think the challenge was, you know, my maturation as a coach and then also, you know, the cultures itself, you know, I think on the men's side back early on, I wanted to win so bad that, um, I didn't see the big picture. So for instance, you know, I would do dumb things like, um, and I look back and it's, it's laughable almost like, you know, the five yellow cards have to sit a game, you know, I'd make a guy get one because I knew we were playing a crap team the next day. And so he, you know, to have him kick a ball away that was, you know, sitting for a free kick or something like that. And uh, they'd get one and they'd come out and then, you know, they'd sit against a bad team versus just playing by the rules and, it's, you know, I know that, you know, I did some things wrong early on. And I think a lot of it was, you know, I was more worried about getting that win and getting to, to that promised land. And then, you know, 2005, 2004, we lost in the, I, you know, we lost in the conference championship game, probably 2001, two, three, four. I mean, there was probably five or six years there where we lost in a conference championship game in early on in my men's side coaching career. And it was frustrating. Um, but eventually 2005, I know for a fact that the leadership group, and it was like, uh, Nick Rowe, Matt Ochoa, Tony Steen, uh, you know, I could go on and on with the, with the guys. Um, they took it upon themselves to say, you know what, we're going to help these young guys out, you know? So I think there was some stuff early on in my career where like up until 2005, where the, you know, there was almost... You know, you could almost call it hazing at at some point. You know, there was guys like they were afraid of the freshmen. They didn't want the freshmen to, you know, get as comfortable right away. And and they, you know, it affected the team. And then um, guys weren't as close. And then by the time we were uh, 2005, that group was seniors. I mean, they were they were really really close. And, and I think that made a big difference. So and then and then we got rolling from there. So yeah, I think well because it's funny because for us, when we got in that first year in 2006, all, all the upperclassmen were like our best friends. So I think right. that one of those things where 
it finally started translating down a little bit because guys like Rich Lack and Burberry and Smirkle, like I still talk to those guys. Right. So, Oh, it, no, there's no question. That was the game changer in my mind. Like, you know, people ask me that point all the time, you know, what changed, what happened, you know, what got you over the hump? And, you know, we were good teams. Don't get me wrong. We had a ton of talent back in those years. Um, but I think that um, the culture and the camaraderie and it came from the guys, you know, I, I can say that as as much as I'm blue, until I'm blue in the face, but, you know, they really started bringing the younger guys in and seniors are best friends with freshmen. And, and there was just this, this all on culture that, Hey, we're going to do everything in our power to, to be successful and to, to be a brotherhood. And, and that's what really changed. I think. When you were doing both at the same time back in those days, it, I mean, you, you, like you said earlier, you were having success with both of them, but it was kind of tough because you had to kind of figure out where, you were going to go, what you were going to do with the teams. What was the most difficult part about balancing both programs simultaneously? <laughs> shifting gears, for sure. Like, I say shifting gears because, you know, sometimes in different – there were years where we were playing different formations with each team and, and you're, you got different strengths and you're trying to figure it out. And I always found it was easier to go from a women's game to a men's game um, you'd play back to back, but there were times like, you know, we'd play and maybe the women played first or the men played first. And I was, I was a wreck. Usually more when the men played first, it's harder to, I felt like it was harder to calm down and go back. Cause, um, to slow down a little bit, you know, just based on the fact that, you know, I didn't want to panic the women's team or anything like that. But, uh, there were years where, you know, I'd certainly had to, uh, slow down a little bit, but it's faster for me to amp it up when, you know, it was easier for me to amp it up and, and go to them from the women to the men. There's no offense. I'm not trying to say things, but it was definitely uh, just a different level of intensity in terms of just how I could handle the teams and how I could, how my rapport was with each team was a little bit different. I wasn't, I'm not the same coach for, for men and women. Um, you know, I, I personality of a team, no matter what team it is, I have to react to it, but Fortunately, um, it didn't happen a lot where I had to make decisions of where to be. Maybe a handful of times over the course of my time at Loris, you know, over 18 years. I mean, we were probably both in the tournament, you know, a good 10 years at the same time. And, I mean, there were some times where we played in the same town. There were some times where we played, um, I can get back and forth. Um, you know, there was, there's been times where we were both at home. So there's a, been a lot of advantages there. In conference tournaments, we've been able to, to manage that too because most of our conference tournaments were uh, kind of a doubleheader weekend and things like that. So um, fortunately, uh, it didn't become too big of a problem, but I did have to make some decisions in the times I did. You know, Early on, it was flip a coin. I just didn't know what to do. Um, and then here towards uh, the last few years when, like, I knew like 2013, the men had a serious chance to win a national championship. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go with the men's team because that's the team that's going to make the run. So um, that's kind of where those decisions have been made now, you know, or, or at least in the last couple of years, um, just to make those decisions based on the teams that had the better chance of making a run. Women's side, you know, those type of things. So, just it changed on on a year to year basis. This is one of the things I always wondered because I never you never know what the conversations are like the other direction. Was there ever any ever any 
sorry, was there ever an, an wow, was there ever any animosity between like one team or the other when one was doing better than the other? Like, was there like when we were making a run in like 07, 08, and the girls were like they were making the tournament but not quite doing the same thing, or like earlier back in like 2001 to 2004 when the women were doing really well and the men weren't quite going. Was there ever any like situations that you had to like de-escalate with that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's always that when you're coaching both teams, no matter what sport, no matter um, if you have the same person coaching two teams, you're going to get um, some questions like, you know, he fav- or or some people questioning you like, you know, hey, Rothert favors the men over the women or he favors the women over the men or whatever it might be. Um, certainly didn't try to. Um, you know, and I did my best to make it to overemphasize um, some of those. If someone had uh, questioned those things, overemphasize those possible reasons why they think I might be uh, favoring one team or the other. So I'd make it look like, you know, I, that much more that I wasn't. But uh, yeah, there's always those people with question marks and questioning what you're doing and why you're doing something and things like that. Literally the first year I flipped a coin, I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, 2005 year and stuff like that. And then I decided the second day I'd go with the other, other team, no matter what, you know, and then the men won and the women had a hard draw with Chicago and we knew that was going to be a tough draw, but you know, and I really, you know, as much as I wanted to be with the men and it was their first time in the tournament too. And looking back, you know, maybe I would have gone with them because it was their first time. Um, but uh, you know, I, I believed in my assistant coaches and they got it done and, and the guys got it done. You truly, you know, soccer is a, a player's game and, you know, you do, you don't do that much during a game. Yeah. When, uh, when our first, when our group came in that one year after you guys graduated, like what was it? Eight senior starters. What was everything like going into that season? Like, were you, were you a little concerned that it was going to kind of end for a little bit? You know, I'm always concerned about that. So, you know, it, you lose eight senior starters. You, I'm concerned. We brought in a really good freshman class. We, you know, we had Santiago Mejia shows up, who's, you know, is a guy that, you know, could be one of the the best, you know, division three players ever, if not, you know, definitely one of the best Loris players ever, but he, uh, Santi shows up and we're like, Oh, you know, this is a difference maker. Plus we had a lot of guys around him that could play and, and uh, we had to, and we had some leaders that were able to bring the guys together right off the bat. So, yeah, I'm always concerned about that. I mean, 2015, we we had 13 seniors and, you know, probably eight starters and, and just, uh, you know, can we get back and what's the, what's the challenge at hand and, and just do our thing. You know, I think we just try to focus on each year and not, not look in the rearview mirror. You can't, or else you're going to cause some uh, problems with your guys and it's going to make uh, winning that much more difficult. What were some of the biggest challenges, like, my first year? Your freshman year? Yeah. Oh, man. You can remember that far um, Yeah, figuring some people out, who's who's who and who's going to play, because we knew we were going to play a lot of freshmen and, and new guys and new faces. And, and even our older guys hadn't played a lot, like, because we had eight senior starters a year before. So, you know, trying to figure out a way to uh, – uh, get those guys made with what we're doing and finding out who can do what, and you know, Nick wasn't really a problem figuring out what could, who what could, what he could do. He ran a lot and he played two touch, you know, 
get the ball to the playmakers. Nick, that's your job. Win the ball, get the ball. Win the ball, get the ball to the guys who can play. You know, and I mean, you know, Nick's probably played some of the most minutes of any Loris player ever because, you know, started as a freshman first game and, you know, for four years, you know, saw a ton of minutes. But um, definitely uh, every year is different. Every year is different challenges. And, and that's the fun part. And that's what keeps you motivated. Tom White is quoted as saying that Nick Rizzo was the smartest Loris player of all time. <laughs> Most vanilla. <laughs> Most vanilla. <laughs> Most boring. Most boring. Yeah, yeah, just I, vanilla. I think, I think Tom described it as Nick had the easiest job of any Loris midfielder. Potentially. I, you know what we were talking about? I heard that conversation in an office today, and they were talking to Coach Pucci, and um, Matt Pucci was, is our uh, associate head coach. He's also our women's coach, but he's uh, he was on that 2006 and 17. He's like, man, Rizzo just – he had the job. We were talking – you know what we were talking about? We were talking about – Milner in the middle for Liverpool. I'm not comparing you to Milner. Oh, um, you! Oh, I was gonna say no. Certainly, certainly will not do that. But you know, um, all we we had ball. We had guys that won the ball. Positions on the field. I would say you know our outside mids all the way up from our to our attacking mids and forwards, you know, we're pretty special. And then our defenders were just rocks who got them the ball and Nick. And, 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 <laughs> and insert random person. Um, one, of, yeah. one of the things I was always curious about, because I mean, I can tell you just from this past year being in like our first playoff game, and that wasn't even like an NCAA tournament game. When you, when we got to 07 and it started, we started making that run. Like, what was it like behind the scenes with you guys? Was it nervous? Was it excited? Was it, freaking out like what was it like that year when we, for anyone that's out listening where the, my sophomore year we had a pretty good year where we we just didn't we weren't losing games we ended up going 23-0 and two and made run to the final four of the NCAA tournament the first time and to be honest as a coach like I don't know how I would have handled that like right now if I <laughs> um yeah it was a fun ride you know looking back I think there was some surprise every game was like holy shit, we just won that game, you know, there was a lot of that going on, but, uh, you know, there were some games where, you know, we probably shouldn't have won, and we somehow pulled it out, um, maybe not in the tournament so much, I think the tournament we, you know, or I, I should take that back, there's a North Carolina Wesleyan uh, game story we should talk about probably at some point, but, um Let's just yeah. get to it because you're a liar is what it comes down to. Yeah, well, that game I lied because so. <laughs> so, Sean, this is a great story. So, so we're, we were number three. We were number three in the country. They were number two, and they were number two, and we had to go there for the Sweet Sixteen game to North Carolina Wesleyan. Um, we played them in the Sweet Sixteen round, and I, they were unbelievable i mean they had all these internationals and they had you know i got the game tape from a couple guys and back then game tape was not really accessible and so you got to realize back in 2007 you have to get you know dvds mailed to you overnight and hope you get them on time to watch someone's game tape and um so i think i got it right before our plane took off and uh, so I got it. I'm watching it on the airplane and I'm, you know, getting ready to break down film. And I'm telling these guys, eh, you know, 
We don't need to watch film. They're not, they're not the. No, I'm not that good. I still remember you're like, honestly, if we go out and we play our game, like we just, we do the things that we've been doing all year, it's, we're we're gonna handle them. And like we get out there and we're confident, like because he's told he's told us his game plan. He's like, you guys do this, you're gonna go in. So we go at them like the first five minutes, and we're we're going at them. We score off a penalty kick. We're up one zero, and I don't know if we touch the ball for the next forty minutes. <laughs> Like I think, I think honestly, like we got outshot that game, like twenty six to th- four, maybe. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we got absolutely pummeled. But we somehow, you know, Nate DeBaugh had a great game, and Ned, our defense played. I mean, I played. I remember sticking. Our defense was so tired and so exhausted from you know they had like a German kid who supposedly had played some professional ball at the time and. You know, there was all kinds of stuff going on and these just freak athletes. And But they had one kid at left back, and we just went at this kid. He was the only kid that could hold. I think he was the only American on their team. And uh, we just – we sent Santi at him the whole game. And uh, so whenever Santi got the ball, he went at him. That was the only chance we were going to get through. Um, made some great saves and, and held on. And, yeah, um, did I expect to win after I saw the game tape? I was like, hell no, we're not going to beat this team. But I was not going to tell you guys that. So, no. yeah, I mean, there's always this mystery of like, you know, as a coach, you got to be like, yeah, I'm confident we're going to win this game. And um, we did some crazy things like Thomas Jennings, who I don't think had played more than like five games all year. And it was only in the blowout moments. You know, our defense is hurting. And I'm like, hey, Tom, come on, you're going in. And Tom Strumpf, who played a lot of minutes, comes over. And I'm like, no, 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 Tom Jennings, you're going in. He's like, he, I was like, I shit my pants for five minutes out there. Get me out, you know. But we somehow, um, we somehow held on and, and uh, got the W. And, and it was crazy. And I think our confidence really soared after that. And the next day we beat Redlands and we're down one nothing, and ended up winning 3-1. And, and you know, uh, you know, the next week we're playing in Orlando in the final four. So, um, you know, there's a lot of fun stories like that, but yeah, I think just coaching is a funny thing. Like there's days when you can show guys everything and there's days when you're just going to hide it and you're just going to say, do our thing and try to see what happens. And, um, you know, I think at that point we're 20, you know, we had won 21 games or, you know, and we had hadn't lost. Let's just give it a whirl and do what we do and see what happens. When uh, I still remember on the plane ride home, I I was sitting next to you and you got like the brochure for the final four. Like, and we were like going through all, like you were handing me like the packets to like Disney world and like that we were going to get tickets to go to the rides. It was still like, honestly, probably one of my, it would have been a really long plane ride sitting next to you if we would have lost that game. Yeah. And it, I mean, that was, that was a kind of a shock and awe moment. Like we got that, like as a thing they handed you at the time, they don't do that. They didn't do that the next year, you know, but that particular year it was like, here's the, here's all the info you need to know. Cause it was literally, you know, you were playing in five days back then. It was like Sunday was the, we were in North Carolina on Sunday, played Redlands one. It was like four in the afternoon, had to get back to Dubuque, turn around and be in Florida by, you know, Wednesday. I think we left Tuesday. Yeah, we left Tuesday. Um, so that's why they gave you that packet of information. So, you know, I'm on the flight home and I'm handing it to you guys, but I was also like, you know, trying to, see what you know game planned a little bit where are we staying what we're doing what's next you know so that was a shock and awe moment like holy shit we really are in this moment right now so we went on in may to speak with uh ian henry josh Royd, declan doherty jeff freeman who loves pizza 
if you remember that episode. Ger Coppinger, we did a bonus show about the World Cup preview where Nick and I were super wrong about everything. We did a one-year anniversary, which was super, super cool, where we had members from the Wednesday night chat just join us. We put the link up, so come in the room, talk to us, uh, let us know what you think, and it was just a really good time uh, for people to get together and talk soccer. June 20th was really cool. Uh, we had the opportunity to go to Wisconsin, uh, Nick and myself, to work a camp together. And, and keep in mind, this is probably the second, I believe, the second time Nick and I uh, ever got to hang out. And so we actually sat down for the first time with our guest. Uh, you know, it's not a little known fact that we we get online and do our interviews. But this guest, uh, we wanted to sit down with because we had the opportunity to, to talk with him. And you know, just such a cool story to hear from a true professional, uh, not just the title, like a true professional throughout whatever they do. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we always talk about Nick being a fanboy, and this was the first opportunity that like right then and there, Nick got to be a fanboy. And it was so great to be a part of that. When uh, honestly, it was so cool earlier when I had met you. Like, like obviously, like I, I love when people introduce myself, but introduce themselves when they're famous. They're like, "Oh, I'm John Bush." I was like, "I know exactly who you freaking are." Um, but I, I turned to Sean right afterwards. I was like, "Because I remember I'm, I'm a big Chicago Fire fan. I've grown yeah. up in the suburbs, and I remember the year that like we'll talk about later when you got goalkeeper of the year. Yeah. I remember thinking like, I go, man, he's really not that big, and hopefully you don't no. take offense. No, to that. no, no. I remember being like. Holy shit, like, you're so, I shouldn't swear on this right no, now. No, everybody <laughs> else does. You might as well go ahead. <laughs> okay, good. We're allowed to swear. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. get that out in the open. I just remember thinking, like, I was like, oh my God, like, he was doing all that stuff. And, like, I think he had two inches on me. Like, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> and I can't cover a quarter of the goal. But um, when you were going through high school, like, how was your high school experience? Like, what was it like for you if, with club growing up? Like, it, was it a little bit different back then? Oh, it's so different now, you know, now that I've started to get involved in, in club coaching and all that. It, it's so different. Back in the day, you know, when you went through it, you, you played for one club. There was no DA. There was no all these different leagues and everything now. It was just you played for this club. I played for a club called Capital United up in, in Albany, New York. I don't even know if they exist anymore, you know. Um, but everybody got, you got scouted to go to college through high school. And when I say that now, people look at you like you're crazy, but they didn't come to our club games. They came to our high school games. A lot different, games. A lot different. And I remember all the college coaches coming to the high school games and you know, on a Tuesday night or a, or a Friday night or whatever. Um, and, but it, it was great. I mean, we had a, we had a good level of soccer back in the day in upstate New York. Um, you know, whether it was in club or, or in high school. Uh, I played for the, the second biggest high school in, in Albany. The biggest high school was Shenandoah, which Miles Joseph went to, Damian Silvera went to. They were loaded. And I didn't know any better when we moved up there. And I went to their rival, this uh, school called Gilderland. And they were we were always battling with them. Um, my first game against them, and it's funny because I still give Miles grief to this day about it, and or he gives me grief one way or the other, but... We went to play him, and you know, big build up the whole week, and or at least a couple days into it, and and you know, I I made the comment out to the press that I said, you know, I think we'll be all right. We'll go up there, and I, I think we might, you know, we might sneak it out. Little did I know how good they were at the time. Well, by ha- by the end of the game, they had forty some shots on goal, and we had two. And we lost 2-0. <laughs> and I'd never been so busy in my life. And Miles and I laugh about it now. Go and I, Miles didn't score. And that was the only thing that mattered to me. You know? and, and I still tell him this day, you didn't score. 
The other guy scored, but you didn't score. But they smashed us. They absolutely smashed us. But the level was so high, it was awesome. And like I said, I mean, it's it's not that – it's much different in today's club world and, and high school world. But back then, that's kind of the way it went. And if you wanted to make the national team, you had to go through state team and ODP and – and regional team and all that, you just had to go through the pecking order. And then, you know, I played for Eastern Pennsylvania when we lived in Pennsylvania. I played for Eastern New York when we, you know, when we lived in New York. I played for Region One. You know, did all that because that's that was the only way you got scouted back then. Yeah, we, me and actually Don Crow were talking about this earlier. It was it's been crazy even with all the switches that have happened with mm-hmm. uh, both on the guys and the girls side. Even when I was playing. Everyone knew who the good players were because you all played in the exact same spot. Mm-hmm. I feel like nowadays it's so diluted that like there could be a stud that like you have no idea about because he's not playing in the same league or the yeah. same area. Back in the day, I mean, and again, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not that much younger than you. It's the same thing where it's like you knew all the good players. Oh, you, yeah. you would say every good person's name in your state because you were all in the same yeah, area. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, you knew where they were. I mean, like I said, you know, Miles played for Shenandoah. That was you know thirty minutes north of us, and and we knew it. Like we knew Miles and Damian played up there. They were they were legit players, and they were older than me. They were both on the U twenties when I was with the U seventeen. So every time we traveled uh, together for the national team, we always met at the at the airport together and that sort of thing. But yeah, you always knew back then. Oh, this you know this team has that guy or this team has that guy, and then you know it's a little bit different now for sure. How did UNC Charlotte find you? Um, well, it, it's a funny story, and Bruce Bruce always gave me grief every time he saw me about this. So, I had verbally agreed to go to UVA. Can we confirm that's Bruce Arena that you're speaking That is okay. Bruce Arena. <laughs> we're, we're, Dick we're, and I are not on a level where we can just say Bruce, yeah, and yeah, people yeah, know sorry, who we're sorry. talking about. Bruce Arena. Bruce Arena. So, I had, uh, I had agreed to, whatever it was, I, I guess fall of my, or spring of my junior, maybe fall of my senior, I don't even remember when it happened, but I had agreed with Bruce to go to UVA. Me and this other uh, player on the under-17s, Andre Chapois, who was from Ohio. Uh, we were the only two seniors at the time. Everybody else was juniors. So we had agreed with Bruce, yeah, we're both going to go to UVA together. Well, um, that was just verbally. So all of a sudden, when it got closer to actually signing it, they had just changed their goalkeeper coach. And back then, you didn't have internet, so you couldn't just Google somebody. <laughs> so I asked Bruce for a week. I said, just give me a week. I need to look into this new goalie coach. You know, I just want to make sure I get the right guy. You know, I, I have aspirations to play at a higher level, da-da-da. Bruce got mad. So Bruce kind of threatened me with my scholarship. And, you know, again, me being a smart punk in high school, I said, okay, you want to threaten me? I'm going to go on other visits now. <laughs> now, again, remember, this is January. This is upstate New York. There's like four feet of snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. So UNC Charlotte calls Frank Colnstein, awesome, awesome coach. No idea where Charlotte even was. <laughs> but I knew it was in North Carolina, and I knew it was going to be warmer. And I said, you know what, Frank? Yeah, I'll come down and look, right? So I went down for a weekend, and it was great. There were five New Yorkers on the team, most of them from the island. But when I went down, the one thing I really, really liked about Charlotte was they didn't try to impress me with – Everything they'd done, you know. If some of these other schools I went and visited, it's like, oh, we did this, we did that, we did, you know. All the players said, look, we know you're good, but you can help us build something here. We're we're trying to move up the pecking order, if you will. And we got a good team. We got a good, solid group of guys. You know, we're not flashy. We're hardworking guys. We're blue-collar. But this is what we're about. And that really appealed to me because I wanted to help build a program. I also knew that, 
they they played a really tough schedule, and I was gonna be busy. If I became the number one right away, I was gonna be busy, and I wanted that. I didn't I didn't want necessarily go to a school where they could win four three, and it didn't really matter if they had a good, you know good goalkeeper or not until they got to the tournament. I wanted to be thrown in the deep end right away, um, so that that appealed to me as well. And the final uh, kind of piece of that was the goalkeeper coach there was a gentleman named Eric Vauder who. Uh, we've been friends for over 20 years now. Uh, he became not just a goalkeeper coach to me. He, he basically became my second father. I mean, we talk about everything. We almost, we talk probably almost every day. And he has put, and I didn't realize this at the time, but as I started training at Charlotte, he's probably put the most amount of professional goalkeepers in the States into becoming pros. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing was, is as soon as I started training down there, all these guys started showing up. Mike McGinty, Jeff Duback, Aiden Heaney. And I'm sitting there as a freshman going, holy crap, all these guys are pros and they're training here because they all wanted to come train with EV. And so for me, it was it was a little bit by luck, but it was the perfect place for me to be because I did win the starting spot. I got thrown in the deep end. I failed a lot before I, I succeeded. But I had a gentleman in EV that knew what it took to develop a goalkeeper, not just at the college level, but to be a pro. Yeah. And so for me, it was a blessing in disguise, but it got me to where I am. And and, and I, I I thank him every time I see him. Um, he'll, he'll never talk much about it. You know, I know he's very proud, but he's a very quiet guy in that aspect. But if if I would not have had that time with him, I would not have still been here today. Yeah. So... So we can thank him for you being on this show then. <laughs> you can thank EV for being on the show because he will listen to it. He'll laugh for sure. So my, my weird question is best moment that you think about your time at UNC Charlotte that makes you smile every single time you think about oh, it. Oh, God. There was, a, there was a few. There was a few. Well, let's see. EB will love this story. So we'll stay on this. We'll stay on this. Then, it's right? the EB hour. It's the EB hour. So freshman year. Again, you know. I think I'm the, you know, I think I'm the cat's meow, as they like to say. And we're playing Virginia Tech at home. Rainy, rainy, pouring down day. We're up like 3-0. It's later in the game. Free kick comes in, and it's it's a good distance. It's probably, I don't know, 30, 35 yards out. Far enough, I don't think I even had a wall. And it skips in front of me, and I, I knock it down, but I give a bad rebound up. Guy knocks it back in, all right? So I'm like, okay, whatever. We still win 3-1, no problem. So after the game, EV has some choice words for me, right? Not so nice. And my my stupidity at the time, I turn around and say to him, EV, that ball was uncatchable. He goes bananas. Don't you tell me what is catchable and uncatchable. I tell you, you can catch that ball. Da-da-da. He goes on and on, right? He leaves. He leaves. He, he grabs his bag. He walks out. I hear him slam his door in his little Volvo, like, you know, whatever, 500 feet away. He pulls the Volvo up to the side of the field, right, on a gravel road, gets back out, slams the door. He's now on the outside of the fence. I'm looking at Frank Colstein, the head coach at the time. I'm doing one of these, looking back and forth between them. He turns around and starts screaming at me and cursing yelling, basically, I'm the wrong person to mess with. 
Yeah. Training tomorrow morning at 5.30 a.m. <laughs> We're going to work on those uncatchable balls. <laughs> and now we laugh about it. It is the running joke for 20-some years. But, oh, my God, I was so scared. I was scared to death. I was Because he's a big guy. He's like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, you know, he's a big boy, right? Now I realize he's a big teddy bear. But back then, I did not realize that. <laughs> so he gets in his car, and he leaves again. So I'm looking at Frank. I'm like, oh, my, what do I do? So I go, we go to the locker room. I shower. Before I leave for the night, I go to Frank's office. And said, Frank, should I call Evie? He's like, yeah, you probably should. So I said, okay. Go home. Again, they have cell phones back then. So I go, I use my little room phone, call Evie. Marsha, his wife, answers. And Marsha's the sweetest lady in the world. Very successful lawyer. Sweetest can be, though. Picks up the phone. I said, uh, Marsha, it's JB. They call me JB back in the day. It's JB. And just this, just this motherly voice. Hi, JB. I said, I know right away she knows the whole story. So I'm like, oh, God. I said, Marsha, is Evie there? Yeah, JB, hold on one second. He gets on the phone. I just say, I'm sorry. I should have not questioned you. He goes, yep, you're right. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And he just hung up the phone, right? Years later, I find out, sitting down with Marsha and Evie, Evie came, walked in his house. He was still pissed. Apparently, he threw his bag, whatever. Marsha asks him what's going on. He tells him the story. He says, I'm done with this kid. I'm done with this kid. He doesn't have what it takes. Marsha says to him, he's going to call you. He goes, no, he's not. I'm not going to talk to him. He says, I'm telling Evie, he's going to call you. 20 minutes later, I called. Wow. And so <laughs> when they hang up the phone, he looked at Marsha and he said, He'll be all right. <laughs> so that, that was one pretty funny story. To get. I didn't know all that until later on, but uh, it was pretty funny how he, he was about to give up on me, and look, thank God he didn't. So he, uh, like I said, he means the world to me, and he knows that. Um, but it's, you know, he, like I said, he, he's much more than a goalie coach. He, he's a dad to me. Uh, we talk about soccer. We talk about world, you know, yeah. life stuff. So he, he's been there through every step of my career. Talk about the season in 2008 with the fire where uh, you made the MLS 11. This is where Nick gets to fanboy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, too, not too often on the show. He'll, he'll admit to being fanboy, and we don't get to do it too often on the show. But this is the like ultimate moment. I haven't let you ask like one question. I'm sorry. And, like, no, I'm, no hey, and most people like your questions better than mine anyway. So. <laughs> is that why he just put his Chicago Fire jersey on? Yeah, life? right? Okay. He brought it out. I like, was wondering why he was changing it. Yeah, we got, we got, I, little does he know I brought a Sharpie with me as well. Ah, oh, so. perfect, perfect. So. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of selfies probably afterwards. Nick's like, oh, look who I'm with. Uh, no, that was a great year. That, that three-year stint that I was there was we had the best locker room, and I've said this before, and I'll say it till I die. That group of guys, we had the best locker room. Chris Armas was the best captain I've ever played for, hands down, absolute legend. He did what was best for the team, whether it was in his interest or not in his interest. But if it was what was right for the team, he did it, and he led the way. C.J. Brown, another unbelievable player, hard as nails. Um... Logan Paws, Chris Rolfe. I mean, the team we had. The, the very cool thing, and I think as you get older, you understand what makes a good team. It's not just a success on the field, but it's what, what goes on in the locker room and how that works. And when you're young, you don't understand that. When you get a little bit older, you understand that. And I understood it in Chicago, and I could see it. But like when we would go for dinner, 
you know, out just on a Tuesday night or whatever. It wasn't one or two guys. It was 10, 11, 12 guys deep. And we loved to be around each other. And that's what I thought was really cool about that group. Yeah, you know, we had Chris Armas had his kids, and he lived outside the city, and so did CJ. So they were, you know, but Chris Ross, Logan's, all of us, John Thorington's, we were all out together. And it was such a cool environment. Um, But we just, we had such a great team that year um, that everybody was pulling in the same direction. And so for me, it wasn't like I did anything unbelievable. You know, we just were such a solid unit, and the boys played so great in front of me all season long. Game in and game out, we were just consistent. We didn't beat ourselves. We didn't give, we didn't give up bad goals. And so for me, I did what I needed to do. Some games it was a little bit more. Some games it was a little bit less. But it wasn't like I was standing on my head every game and I was making 20 saves. It was just do what's called upon. And because we, I think we... We had at least ten shutouts. I don't know if we had the the league record that year or what, but you know, part of pretty much the most most of the reason was because of the guys in front of me. The team just had success, and and my numbers spoke on that, and and that's why I got the goalkeeper of the year. That was awesome. When um, that was the first thing since we got in the car after camp today, yeah. it was like, do you know he was a goalkeeper of the year in MLS? I was like, <laughs> yeah, I knew that. Did you know? And I'm like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I remember watch. I watched like every game that year. He was the best keeper. I'm like, well, he did win goalkeeper of the year. Yeah, it's like when you grow up in Chicago, it's like you guys like used to play games like in like the preseason stuff and like the U.S. Open Cup. You play like Wheaton College, yeah. And like Wheaton College was literally two minutes down the road from me. So okay, I, okay. So I, 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 we, we grew up watching those nice. games, and that's cool. It, it was just fun because like I was, I remember I would be that I was the I loved Chris Rolfe because he was like the shorter blonde oh, hair guy. Awesome, yeah. And I always remember like, dude, why is this guy not getting national team minutes right now? Like, I was like, this guy's the best and stuff. But can like, you get Nick a Chris Rolfe eight by ten autograph? <laughs> yeah, I'll text him. I'll text him. <laughs> yeah. him, I'll text him that will make Nick's life. It'll go right in his office. Back, ladies, you the, see this guy. The one cool thing about Rolfe, and I loved Rolfe, and I still do. Um, he had the quickest release I've ever had against me off a shot. He could get a shot off so quick, and that's part of the reason why he scored so many goals was not necessarily his power. I mean, he could hit the ball hard, but because he caught, got got it off his foot so quick, it still caught goalkeepers getting set, and next thing you know, it's, it's already passed them. Um, and I would tell him that all the time in training. Like I actually had to speed myself up because of him because he got it off so quick. Yeah, he was a great finisher. No, I, he was he was my favorite on that team. All right, we should probably take. I, I've been talking for like forty minutes. <laughs> I I want you to get it out of your system. <laughs> Do we, well, how many minutes are we in right now? Oh, we're we're solid. We're solid. We got, uh, we got another two hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This will be the, this will be the first ever soccer chat three parter. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a three parter, but we did have another episode with John later on in July. We went on to talk to Jason Broadwater, who just started his own podcast called On a Touchline. Make sure to check that out. JB's a excellent, excellent uh, supporter of Soccer Chat. We did our 100K celebration when we reached 100,000 listens. We did a nice little uh, party for everybody and did our own little World Cup thing. Uh, like we mentioned, we did a part two with John Bush because the story was just so phenomenal that we had to go back. And, you know, we joked about being a three-parter. It's going to be a three-parter because in Chicago at the convention on Podcast Row on Friday, John Bush and the famous EV that he mentioned in his stories, uh, they're both going to come together and do a live show with us on Friday at 4 p.m. So make sure you come by, check that out, Friday 4 p.m. to get the John Bush and Eric Vodder live soccer chat uh, at 
United Soccer Coaches Convention podcast row. We went on to talk to Dustin Wise, who was just getting his starting and head coaching. Uh, then we went in and had a nice little preseason leadership uh, meeting with Molly Grisham again. We talked to Ian Sarachin, uh from Santa Clara, whose dad at the time was the interim U.S. men's coach. We talked to Jaron Holm, Katie Reese, who is Nick's uh, assistant at Monmouth, a very hilarious interview with Joe Sager. If you get the opportunity to meet Joe, go talk to him. He's just a, such a, a splendid guy to talk to an awesome coach and has the best one liners. If you ever need things to say to officials during games, uh, Joe has the absolute best ones. We also went on uh, towards the end of August. We talked to Jen Demos, who I had just met at a camp just a few weeks prior to us recording this. Uh, Jen got on and talked about being a graduate assistant and and where she was heading to that next chapter in her career. And, and we hope to uh, run into Jen very soon and find out where that next chapter is taking her. Uh, starting in September, we talked to Simon Wigley. Our good friend Ian Wilson uh, came on the show with us. Colton Bryan, who's a who's a main factor uh, on the Wednesday night chats, always gets on there and has some good things uh, to say. We had David Robertson uh, on September 26th, which if you got anything from that, it's the guy can sing a masterful rendition of Oasis Wonderwall. Uh, Tyler Smallha came on. Uh, you know, one thing that we can always remember from that show is that he was on the Family Feud. I went back and watched the video clip because it's on Google. It's all over the internet. Uh, just a very, very awesome guy to talk to, uh, really making his way up in the coaching ranks. Uh, also in October, we talked to Derek Pulse uh, from Midland Soccer Club. We had Ellis Riley on. And Ellis was somebody that we want to have on just because of the impact he's been making on social media with the things that he's posting of you know, whether it's diagrams of what pass should this player make or just really informational stuff that, you know, I'm using it with my, my club players. I'm using it with my college players. I'm, I'm, I'm sending this out to other coaches and having them use as well. And he's somebody that I hope if you get the opportunity to talk to him at convention, uh, please do so because it's, it, you're going to learn from this young guy and he's got so much information uh, that he's putting out there for everybody that uh, one day he's going to have his own coaching course and we're going to learn a lot from it. One of the things I wanted to get to for this conversation today is you are probably, I mean, Sean talked about this a little bit earlier, one of the best people in terms of social media that we know in terms of soccer. When did that all start for you? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I wouldn't say I, I'm that high up, but I I, uh, I got a credit. Um, I'll give credit here to Dan Abrahams and Gary Kaneen because when we were at the convention in LA in 2017. I recently, I think it was a few months before that, I'd started just sharing ideas out there on social media. Just, I guess I'd seen a few other people doing it. I mean, personally, Gary, uh, I knew Gary from our time at Wingate together uh, back in 2011. So we went back a little bit and um, I remember having a chat with them at the convention and, and Dan Abrahams was, was there too. And, and Dan said to me, best piece of advice he gave me was, he said, Ellis, if you want to develop and grow, he said, you need to crave feedback and you need to be on the constant lookout for feedback. And he said, but, but alongside that, you have to be willing to share and be vulnerable with any and all ideas you have. And that, that's always stuck with me. I remember us, us three having a chat and, and Dan said that to me at the convention. And, and I think it was really at that point, I got home from convention and um, I put a blog out on my website, just recapping it all. And I remember touching on that because it had stuck with me immediately after I got home. And 
And I thought after that point, I thought, right, you know, I, I'm in America. I, yes, I haven't had a professional playing career. I mean, like to think I was a half decent player, but um, the reality is now that the coaching path is, is opening itself up for me to, to potentially pursue as a career. And, and I need to give myself every opportunity to connect network and get myself out there. And ultimately, uh, from that point on, I think I really then started pushing myself, pushing my own ideas, pushing myself in my free time. And, and it was just a case of I'm at home. I've got an hour free. Come, come up with some work, put it out there and see what people think. Uh, that's honestly the basics of it. And uh, it does take up a lot of free time. It does. But I enjoy it. And I, I believe it's now a hobby. But it's also a hobby that's hopefully going to help me in the long run because it allows me to network and connect. Obviously, uh, very grateful you guys asked me to come on the podcast here. And I don't think I would have been asked to do that if, if it wasn't for getting myself out there on social media. So, Well, to be honest, the first time I think you and me interacted was, I mean, I, I'm sure we followed, I, I think I followed you or you followed me at some point, but you, after convention last year, were sent out our posts on there like, Hey, I'm doing something with the notes that I put down at oh. convention. Oh yeah. Give me a message if you want. I was like, yeah. Like I didn't have the money to go to convention. I was like, that was awesome. And stuff like that is just really cool. And I think that when all of us are trying to do the exact same thing, that really, I remember that was really my first ta- like taste of like what you were kind of uh, on and what you were up to. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Um, if anybody asks me about that, and a lot of people have mentioned it, they'll say, oh, you sent me your, your presentation from convention. I had a few guys in Arizona tell me that when I was recruiting in April. And I said the same thing to them. I said, I said I enjoyed putting the presentation together. It was, it was great fun, and I was more than willing to share it out. But the biggest mistake I made was putting on that tweet, direct message me your email. Because, How many did you get? Um well over a thousand it was like <laughs> I literally i remember waking up so i it was a monday because we had a snow day here we had a really bad storm and i spent the whole day finishing it off and i posted the tweet that evening or that afternoon and i woke up tuesday morning and i remember i looked at my phone and my phone had at the time it had about 580 notifications on twitter alone. <laughs> and i just thought i thought what have i done uh, it was honestly, I genuinely regretted it because it took me, it took me three to four days to get through them all. And just, just to copy and paste the emails into the, into the presentation, the email link and send it all out. So, uh, note, note for future coaches thinking about putting a collaboration together and sending it out. Don't ask for direct messages, do a Dropbox link or something, which I wasn't smart enough to think of because <laughs> I ruined my life for four days. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, awful, but that's hilarious. But I do appreciate you saying that to me. Um, One of the ones I was curious about is where did you get the idea to do the game scenarios? I think, so I think Ian Barker was sharing some, some kind of, he was doing, I think a little different. He was doing them on the quick tactics that the United soccer coaches use. and, And he was sharing ones where, it offered you sort of a, I think a few of them were maybe sort of a spot the ball type scenario ones. And um, they were very similar. And I remember thinking, that's great. And I thought, obviously, without sort of 
taking that idea and, and just copying it, obviously, I thought, can, I thought maybe I could bring that more to life or, or in, in a similar way, could I bring that more to life, in, you know, to complement it? Um, and uh, thankfully, Ian's been great with that. He's he shared them before and in the past. And I think really I probably took it from him a little bit. Um, but really, uh, once I had access to the tactical pad software and I realized they did the 3D animations, uh, I put one together once and I thought, this looks pretty cool. Uh, let's let's see what people think. And, and thankfully, they've gone down really well. And uh, it's it's you know, something we've, we've been able to keep up with and, and people keep asking for. So uh, we've been able to keep sharing it out. You mentioned uh, about the, not putting the Dropbox link out there and like asking for the emails and, and DMs. And I think that brings back, cause you, you mentioned that you instantly regret it in coaching. We learn our philosophies and we learn who we are from our mistakes. So now, now you've got that in hand and, uh, you know, just throw that drop buck links on there. Yep. Biggest, biggest lesson learned of this of 2018 <laughs> right there. <laughs> I, I think that should be like your coaching philosophy model and make sure that that is like massively big on your website. Like first thing people see <laughs> always include a drop box. Link. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And whenever you start teaching your own coaching course courses, that's like chapter one. Yeah. Um, after having Ellis on, we had Chris Hot Thompson from Knox College, who was a, a great uh, listen to and, and just a, a fantastic story of, of where all he's been and, and how he's taken things from everywhere he's been into where he's at now. Uh, we had an episode where we surprised Nick. We had him on. We, went to, we got to know his story a little bit. Uh, that's episode 70. We kicked off November with that. And then we spoke with Aaron Egoff, uh, the UIS women's head coach, who has an awesome story about not only coaching at UIS, but she played there as well. UIS is really is really all she ever knows. Uh, we had a really cool episode the week of Fred Thanksgiving. I was giving away the title. It was called Friendsgiving, where, again, we had uh, our Wednesday night soccer chat friends just hop on, and we all just talked about soccer and coaching and, and what we were thankful for. November 29th saw us meet a new friend who was just just blew us away. Uh, Michael Mismer uh, at the time was the Penn State Lehigh Valley women's head coach, and he also was a corrections officer. Corrections officer at the time and a former MMA fighter. And he was just so cool to talk to such a good dude that, you know, we just, we instantly fell in love with him and we know other people did as well. And recently he had to uh, resign uh, from the Penn state Lehigh Valley team uh, because of him retiring from the corrections uh, officer job because he's a state employee. He had to also give up his coaching job as well. And that, that just, it absolutely tore me up. Uh, just because this guy was doing so many amazing things with this brand new program and, and was really doing a good job, uh, setting them up and getting ready for their second season. Uh, that I hope that, uh, you know, along with this club thing that he's doing, I really hope that somebody picks him up on the college game, uh, because Michael Mesmer is just an amazing, amazing dude. Uh, when we talk about, you know, being a good brother, he is as good of a brother as you can get. And besides he can probably tear your head off too. Uh, we kicked off December with Shannon Smith, a new friend of ours from North Shore United, uh, who we also got to meet at the next show that we did, uh, the Wisconsin Women's Soccer Symposium. We were there live uh, where we got to give you guys highlights of everything that was going on and just being a part of there where Nick got to meet Anson Dorrance. And well, I mean, he got to ask him a question, uh, but it's the same thing. And. You know, just we we made so many more connections. It was kind of for like us for it was kind of like a dry run of of what to expect uh, going into the the United Soccer Coaches Convention 
uh, in, in Chicago in January. And we got to meet so many new friends there. And so many people come up to us that we never knew that said, hey, I listen to your show. It was just really kind of an eye opener for us. And we got into the the week before thing or week before Christmas because we're in December now. Uh, and we talked to Tiffany Pence from Wartburg, who just had a really cool story about, uh, you know, being a mom and still coaching and, and having a family life and not having to sacrifice, you know, because we, we hear about how crazy you know, this coaching life is and, and, you know, not having to sacrifice family for soccer, not having to sacrifice soccer for family and making family and soccer the same thing. And as, as a father myself, that was just such a cool thing to hear because I know there's a lot of us who do have fears of trying to be college coaches and having a, wanting to have a family. Just sometimes the schedules are insane and you, it's really hard to make it work. Um, so you know, that's kind of a wrap on how we got to this point, our last episode of 2018. You know, again, like I said, Nick is on a beach somewhere and it's kind of upsetting because I went up north to Michigan, but thankfully the snow melted before I got there. So I hope that, uh, as we said at the beginning, that you all got what you wanted for Christmas uh, and and you're going to have the happiest of holidays. And just know that in 2019, man, it's going to be a massive, massive year, not just for soccer chat. It's going to be a massive year for you guys. You as well, all the good brothers and sisters out there listening, we're going to have the best year ever because of, it's just because, because there's not a specific reason. We're going to have the best year ever because 2019 is going to do that for us. 2019 is going to start off with a bang. We've got an awesome show the first week. Uh, It's going to be giving you guys a preview of what we're going to be doing at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, January 10th through the 13th. We're actually going to be there 10th through 11th on podcast row. So make sure to come see us. We have lots of live live shows lined up for you guys. They are all freaking awesome. We've got so many amazing live shows. And in the times where we don't have live shows, come up, say hi to us. We're going to have giveaways because our whole booth is going to be powered by exact sports. And when we're not recording, we want you to come up and record with us. Come up and tell us, you know, if we see you on soccer chat on Wednesday nights, come up and say something to us and we'll just sit down and record. So, yes, we're going to have live shows. They're going to be interactive. Come out, ask questions of the coaches that we're going to have there, listen to their stories and then have a seat with us and talk to us, too. We want to hear from you guys. We want to put you on shows uh, after that. Also, make sure on the 10th at 6 p.m. You got to come out to our meet and tweet. That's right. We're having a meet and tweet from our booth on podcast row. Again, powered by exact sports. You show up, you got your phone in hand. You've seen all the people that you chat with on Wednesday nights and you're going to meet them. Finally, not just other than tweeting. We're going to actually all see each other. And I want to make sure that we take the biggest selfie that is taken at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I think that we all can make that happen. I, I truly, truly believe it. Make sure if you haven't, get online right now and get your Soccer Chat t-shirt. We want to see everybody wearing those on Thursday. Go check out the link. My man, John Denham's hooking us up. Envision Tees, they made a great shirt. It's awesome. You can even get your Twitter name on the back. Big shout out to the folks at Social Media for the High School Athletes because of them we put the show out for you every single week for free. Get it wherever you get your podcast. You know, you know where all it is. I don't got to tell you. Well, I mean, Nick's on the island. I'm Sean, but well, we'll catch you next year. <laughs>